Well, it's that time for us to uh, open up the Word of God and to rally around the truth and dig in deep and uh, enjoy the, the food that God has for us there. <clears throat> um, if you uh, are just joining us, we are working our way through the book of Ecclesiastes, so take your Bibles and turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Now, we're going to be looking at verses 18 to 26, the last portion of this chapter, uh, and I'm very excited. I've already cued the sound man, so we're good, in case you're wondering. Uh, I'm also the, uh, the sound man, as well as the worship leader. Uh, so I've, I've taken those hats off, I've put on my preaching hat, so to speak, and I'm ready to go, and I hope you are as well, because there's a lot here that we need to cover. So without further ado, I would say that there is nothing worse than working long hours for something only to come up empty-handed at the end of your time, or lose whatever sweet fruits perhaps you did produce from your labor. Nothing worse than that. We've all experienced this, and we, we never do get used to it, I think. Uh, that special cake that you made for, the, uh, for tonight's event falls in the oven. Uh, the dog ate your display unit that you spent hours putting together for your office meeting. Uh, you owe more of your hard-earned cash to the IRS, so there goes your summer vacation trip. It doesn't matter what the context is, there's always some remorse over losing what you've worked hard for. The empty feeling it leaves people with can, well, vary in degree, I guess, from mild homesick feeling to debilitating disappointment. It's like spending time and energy prepping and painting a house that is wound up condemned or spending a day getting ready for a big gala that you discover moments before you're ready to leave the house that it's been canceled. I remember in the early days of computers when I didn't know much about how to navigate my way around Windows. I would occasionally lose pages of a research paper because someone accidentally knocked out the plug while vacuuming. I learned the importance of then saving my material as I go, rather than doing it all at the end. I remember also learning about the invaluable undo button, and how, depre uh, how depressing the control button and the, the, the Z keys simultaneously would undo my last action and bring me right back to the application right before it. You see, I typed very quickly, and back then, being so long on a typewriter, I would somehow accidentally uh, hit uh, keys, not knowing it, trying to get used to a computer uh, um, keyboard, and I would wind up highlighting large portions of the text, and then hitting another key and deleting the whole thing. In a split second, something that took me hours to compose just in the right, just in the right way vanished before my eyes. And there was no way of reproducing it word for word. It was maddening. My life changed drastically when I discovered Control-Z. And I've since demonstrated my computer retrieval prowess to others who are now, as I once was, totally ignorant of Control-Z. We can come now to our text this morning 
and expects this, expect the sage to, to show us some biblical truth. He does. By empirical study of his own life experience, he shows us that the great loss of the fruits of one's labor is difficult. It's much more serious, of course, than a fallen cake, a lost document, and a canceled event. He's talking about the fruits of one's labor over life, especially fruit that one has managed to accumulate, you see, over a lifetime only, to have to forfeit his enjoyment of it because of the brevity of life and leave them to someone else. I've summarized the main idea for you this way. In the end, the fruits of a self-centered life promises only resentment, hopelessness, and frustration because the future of its estate is beyond its control, lasting reward of the just is beyond its reach, and the advancements from its labor are beyond its scope. There's a lot there, so let's unpack that. We're saying that a self-centered life toils for personal gain that leads only to resentment, hopelessness, and frustration because the future of its estate is beyond its control. We find this in verses 18 to 23. We've been arguing all along since the beginning of our study of Ecclesiastes that there is a difference a difference between an under-the-sun worldview and an above-the-sun worldview. And we see that the sage himself now brings the contrast between the two into sharp focus. He tells us that the 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 under-the-sun worldview belongs to a self-centered life, a life lived under the sun without God at the helm, without a personal relationship with the Almighty. There is an unredeemed, this is an unredeemed life. And as you might imagine, a self-centered life works for, works for personal gain, always striving to be compensated with lasting satisfaction for all its toil under the sun. So far, the sage has proven empirically with hedonism and human wisdom that any gain or reward that one might receive from his labors Well, it's short-lived. It's fleeting at best. And even that seems to require a great deal of energy to generate and to maintain. Remember, earthly gain is proportional. Remember when we made that point a few weeks back? You get out only what you put in. It's much like the small dynamos or magnetos that people stick on the forks of their bicycle in order to light their way. You see these in the city. We don't see them out here in the country. It has a rubber wheel at the end of, uh, of it, and it rides that wheel rides along the sidewalls of the tire so that when the tire rotates, it turns on the dynamo and powers the light. So the faster you pedal, the faster the dynamo wheel turns and the brighter the light. Consequently, the slower you go, the dimmer the light. And, well, if you stop, the light goes off altogether. Or think, or think of it this way. Life is much like a garden. If you let it go, you take no steps to tame it, weed it, feed it, water it, and prevent bugs from eating it. It'll become a wild and chaotic mess in no time. Come to my house and I'll show you. 
Letting fallen nature take its course is never a good idea if you're hoping to enjoy a beautiful, uh, well-organized, groomed, and lush garden. The self-centered life is very much like this. It has, it has all it can do to maintain the fruits of its labor. One lax moment here, another moment of neglect there, and their fruit is waning. Fleeting satisfaction doesn't seem to be worth all the hard work required to experience it, does it? In fact, according to the sage, it isn't. In fact, any sane person, if any sane person considers the, the contributing factors of this, he would see that the fruit of a self-centered life leads only to resentment, hopelessness, and frustration. Now, that's a rather bleak view of life. Is it really that bad? It is. Let me introduce you to these contributing factors, and you can judge for yourself. The first one, we already mentioned, it's in verses 18 to 23, and it has to do with one's estate or accumulated wealth. So what about it? Well, the sage says that the future of anyone's estate is beyond his or her control. From an under-the-sun point of view, one cannot help but resent the fact that he has no control over his estate and has to give it away at the end of his life. He even finds the concept of inheritance detestable. Detestable? Yes. That's the, the word that the sage uses. He uses very strong language here. Look at verse 18. I hated all the fruit of my labor for which I labored under the sun, because I must leave it to the man who will come after me. That's plain enough. You essentially work all your life for someone else's enjoyment, which is rather ironic for a self-centered life, wouldn't you think? Pleasure and reward are fleeting enough, but the thought that whatever I manage to accumulate over a lifetime of hard work has to go to someone who didn't work for it, is intolerable. Oh, and it gets worse. Verse 19 says, And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool, yet he will have control over all the fruit of my labor for which I labored by acting wisely under the sun. Let's be honest, okay? No one thinks like you about how best to use your resources at any given time. At least not the degree that you do, right? No one will be as meticulous as you about accounting, or as careful as you about spending, or as careful as you about investing. Your philosophy differs enough from the beneficiary of your estate, and that leaves you no guarantee that your estate will be maintained in the way that you want it to be, the best way that you think it should be. What you think is the wisest way, well, the beneficiary thinks is somewhat Silly, outdated, or even foolish, and vice versa. There are just no guarantees to your estate after you're gone, no matter how detailed your will is. You know, there are certain eventualities that no one can account for that will affect the estate down the road. All in all, then, you must agree that it is futile to work your fingers to the bone only to have to surrender the fruit of your labors to an uncertain end. And not only this, 
Not only is this a detestable part of reality that makes a person resent having to give away his inheritance, it's also rather hopeless. If he hated the fruit of his labor in verse 18, well, he despairs over it in verse 20. Therefore, I completely despaired over all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun. No doubt. And for good reason. It's a reward earned over a lifetime, fleeting though it may be, to be enjoyed, but death will prevent a person from enjoying it fully. But someone else will. Someone who didn't earn it. He didn't work for it. He's not really worthy of it. And it will be his to do with it what he pleases. The sage says this more succinctly in verse 21. When there's a person who has labored with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, and then gives this legacy to one who has not labored for it, this too is futile and a great evil. Have you noticed the increasing negativity that comes with each of the sages passing evaluations of inheritance? Whoever inherits it could be a fool, and, and that made the benefactor resentful. Now the fool is undeserving of it, and that makes the benefactor hopeless. And we come now to the final passing evaluation in verses 22 and 23. The sage tells us that the entire process of inheritance is utterly frustrating. For what does a person get in all his labor and his striving with which he labors under the sun? Because all of his days, his activity is painful and irritating. Even at night, his mind doesn't rest. Are you relating to this? Verse 22 is really a proverb put in the form of a rhetorical question. Rhetorical questions don't need to be answered. The answer is obvious. In this case, the answer is a resounding and hollow nothing. Nothing. Those who are governed by an under-the-sun worldview really wind up with a big, fat zero at the end of their lives. They leave this world the same way that they came in, with nothing. And what makes it more frustrating is that between birth and death, there is a lifetime of toil and pain and suffering. Oh, and don't forget the many sleepless nights. The pathetic, self-centered soul works overtime, always thinking about how to make a profit or how to improve on sales or how, how to protect what, might, what his advancements might be and, and what could happen to them. And this hectic, relentless toil and mental anguish that plagues a person is for what? A little relief? A flash-in-the-pan experience of elation and satisfaction? A disproportionate amount of compensation? And here we learn that this context, which has gone from detestable to hopeless to frustrating, is now a great evil. Now, don't think of evil here as a, in a moral sense, but rather in a sense of a bad situation. In other words, this is bad as it gets. This is the ultimate and inevitable end of all of those who are in bondage to an under-the-sun lifestyle. It's wicked. 
Now, you might be thinking of people that you know who are either at the end of their lives or maybe who have already died that would not have characterized their lives in such bleak terms. And that's no doubt true. But if the nature, beloved, if the nature of a self-centered life demands satisfaction of self, personal gain, then the logical end of such a lifestyle that is deprived of such gain has to be resentment, hopelessness, and frustration. It has to be. If it doesn't always seem that way in the lives of people that you know and hear about, that's because they've learned how to mask it all and redefine their reality. In other words, they've come to accept their lives that it will end at some point. Well, that's natural, they say. And they also accept the fact that everyone leaves their estate to someone else, usually their kids or some charitable organization. That, too, is natural, they say. It's the same thing with a depraved life, in fact, that the Apostle Paul talks about in Romans 1. People learn to suppress the truth, and they wind up making the worship of creation and even homosexuality, the, the natural thing, says so, Romans 1, 18 to 25. But you know, none of that is natural. In fact, according to the Bible, death is not natural either. You say, what? Not death? Death is a result of man's own sin. Death is usual because it happens to everyone but it's not natural. Here's the deceptive thing about depravity. What is unnatural, sinful, and enslaving are redefined as virtuous because that's the only way an under-the-sun worldview can keep from being resentful and hopeless and frustrated. By the way, God never intended man to die. That's a result of sin. So the sage, the sage does humanity a favor here by exposing the truth about life in, in order to wake people up with this first contributing factor. The logical conclusion to life under the sun is that the future of anyone's estate is beyond his or her control. Here's the second contributing factor. Lasting reward of the just is beyond reach of the self-centered life. It's beyond its reach. We find this in verses 24 to 26. The sage introduces for the first time in Ecclesiastes a solid glimpse of a life that actually operate, operates by an above-the-sun worldview, right here. He says, verse, starting at verse 24, there is nothing better for a person than to eat and drink and show himself some good in his trouble. This too I have seen, that is from the hand of God, for who can eat and who can have enjoyment without him? For to a person who is good in his sight, he has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. He says, you've heard it, there is nothing better in life under the sun than this. And right away, we get the, the idea that this is an ideal way of life. Nothing better. That's it. 
You wouldn't want to live any other way. So what's the ideal? It's that a person is able to eat and drink and show himself some good in his trouble. The phrase eat and drink is not a plug for hedonism. He, he already shot that down verses ago. It's really a figure for enjoyment. And it seems as though we can experience it, listen very carefully, in the troublesome context of life. In the troublesome context of life. Putting this all together, the idea is to experience a true and lasting joy in the very midst of one's painful toil under the sun. Now that's a new concept. Up to now, gain is what a self-centered lifestyle understands as the reward for its labor. But here, here the sage explains that we can enjoy reward in the midst of our labor, in our trouble, in the doing of our responsibilities while we make a living, while we suffer through difficult times. It doesn't matter what the trouble is. The joy here is not dependent on circumstance, but experienced in spite of circumstance. This joy is not situational. The word, the, uh, the, uh, th this would make rather the, the joy spoken of here an abiding one, a lasting one. A contentment that is not fleeting, but endures. A kind of peace that passes all understanding. Something like that. I can illustrate this concept with a true story of my ministry. Ever since I entered the ministry, I've not stopped. Those who know me well can vouch for me. I'm always busy with some aspect of God's business, whether it's counseling, encouraging others, sermon prep, some kind of missionary work, teaching young men in seminary how to be pastors, ministering to my kids, ministering to my wife, working bivocationally, reading, writing, editing other people's books. Always doing. And I would say that I've become busier the longer I've been at my calling. Well, maybe I'll slow down when I'm old and feeble. <clears throat> and it's not that I'm opposed to vacations, you understand. I've even taken a couple in the nearly 30 years of full-time ministry. This issue is, the issue is not, will I? The issue is, can I? And with the many responsibilities I have, it's not likely that I can. But I have learned, and I learned a long time ago, to find rest in the doing of the work. I found lasting reward and abiding joy in my ministry. And that's not to say that some of it hasn't been difficult. It has. Extremely difficult. Or that some of what I do has been my first choice. It hasn't been. Especially the times where I may have to confront somebody or correct someone. It hasn't been uh, it, it, it has certainly been demanding. It's been very demanding. But this was all part of my ministry, which I firmly believe then, as I do now, was given to me by the hand of a merciful God. To quote Paul 
2 Corinthians 4.1, who puts it best. He says, Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Ministry is a precious thing. And there were plenty of moments when I was caught up in the rush of joy for this ministry that God called me to years earlier. And in those moments, I make it a point of pushing away from my desk and praising God right then and there. To find enduring joy in one's troublesome, lifelong task is the ideal way to live. Contrary to what we see in the churches today, Christians are supposed to be joyful. They are thankful people. We can be sure that the sage himself experienced this. He tells us that the ability of finding abiding joy in the midst of life, this ideal, is a gift from God. Notice verse 24. This too I have seen, that it is from the hand of God. Enjoying lasting reward in the midst of a troublesome life that we've lived in a fallen world run by the evil one is a gift from God himself. Verse 25 makes it abundantly clear that God gives that gift only to his redeemed own. For who can eat and who can have enjoyment without him? This is a, another rhetorical question. You can see the sage is fond of them, but then again, they are characteristic of wisdom literature. And the question anticipates another negative answer. No one can. No one can enjoy this ideal lifestyle without God at the center of it. It's just not a characteristic of an under-the-sun worldview. Notice the beginning of verse 26. For to a person who is good in his sight, he has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. Only those who are good in God's sight receive this gift of abiding joy, which no doubt is nurtured by means of godly wisdom founded on biblical truth. That's what produces this joy. As we argued last time, we said it was a biblical epistemology. Remember? Now that begs the question, who are those people that the sage is talking about? The ones that please God. Well, I mentioned moments ago that the first time the sage gives us a glimpse of this above-the-sun worldview is right here. Here he talks about the one who lives, who lives by it. And since Ecclesiastes, listen very carefully, since Ecclesiastes is part of a larger corpus of biblical material, that, be, that being the Old Testament, and therefore contributes to its theme of redemption, we can easily understand the sage to be talking about redeemed people. Long before the sage ever picked up his pen, in fact, long before he was ever born, much of the Old Testament had already been written. This book is late, as we argue in our introduction. You can be sure, then, that he himself was catechized in it. And as a member of the Old Covenant, he knew about what it meant to have a covenant relationship with God. And we might assume safely that he also knew that the New Covenant, prophesied by Jeremiah and Ezekiel, he knew it well and was anticipating the coming of Messiah. Now that is not a stretch by any means. And when you widen the lens on his book, 
you see that he actually makes a clear distinction between the life lived by one who neither knows nor fears God and his coming judgment and the one who does. So we would be right in understanding the sage's reference to the person who is good in God's sight to be that person who has been redeemed by trusting in the work that Messiah would do and now enjoys a covenant relationship with God. That's who. And he no doubt was familiar with God's promise to David in the New Covenant in Psalm 89. He would sing it with the throng in the temple. So I will establish his descendants forever and his throne as the days of heaven. And he sung it many times as he did Psalm 111.9. He has sent redemption to his people. He has ordained his covenant forever. And he claimed the words of Psalm 18, verse 2, for himself in song. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, my savior, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. And he no doubt sung it with flair. So as a redeemed covenant member, the sage had the ability to enjoy God's benefits. And no matter how difficult life was, or painful, or how much it was fraught with suffering, he lived his life to the glory of God. And there is much gain in that, beloved. Much reward that would would also accumulate by the end of time in a better country. The rest of the Old Testament is clear on this, as is also the closing remarks of Ecclesiastes and all of it is confirmed in the New Testament. We're familiar with the commentary that Hebrews 11 provides for the champions of righteousness. Remember, we spent two years looking at this. The champions of righteousness of the Old Covenant, like Moses. Do you remember the writer tells us that Moses, and he tells us this is under the direction of the Holy Spirit, chose to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the temporary pleasures of sin considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. There it is. It was considered Messiah to be more important than the treasures of Egypt. What a testimony to this kind of above-the-sun living. Further on, in the same chapter, the writer attributes this worldview to all those saints He states in verse 39 that they had gained approval through their faith. That would be the approval of God. Those who have been redeemed by the blood of God's perfect Lamb, Jesus Christ, they have received the ability to rejoice in their God through any and all circumstances because he has outfitted us with divine wisdom that comes from his special revelation. Here's Paul's testimony. Philippians chapter 4, verses 11 to 13. I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with a little. I know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Well, we come back to where we started with this second contributing factor, 
lasting reward of the just is beyond the reach of self-centered lives. And I have to believe that those who have self at the center of their lives are not just outraged over the fact that they constantly strive for self-satisfaction that lasts in a fallen world that cannot deliver for them, no matter what they do or how hard they try or how many hours they put in. But I also believe they feel acute outrage the moment they learn that lasting reward that they so desperately crave belongs only to a God-centered way of life. How do people entrenched in a self-centered lifestyle and live in a fantasy world where they have redefined all ills and evils as virtuous even learn this? Well, that's where you come in. From us. From the church. Here's where we bring to them, with the love of Christ, the pure, unadulterated gospel that is sure to offend. But we're not ashamed of that, for the gospel is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, right? And everyone under the sun, held in bondage to this self-centered life, desperately needs to hear the gospel. We come then to the last part of verse 26, and the last contributing factor to an otherwise resentful, hopeless, and frustrating existence not only is the future of its estate beyond its control and lasting reward beyond its reach, but the advancements from its labor are beyond its scope. Now, what are we saying here? Well, by scope, I mean the area of someone's interest or intent. In a self-centered, under-the-sun lifestyle, the area that a person intends to benefit from his advancements, from all his hard labor throughout his life, is himself. Who else would he want them, his advancements, to benefit? Self-centered life. This is the nature of a self-centered life. Everything is meant to advance the satisfaction of self, and that is the scope, the area of interest. But alas... A sane person, even with only an under-the-sun worldview, would have to admit, once all the data are in, that he has no control of the scope of his advancements, not in a fallen world that runs ultimately according to God's will, including Satan's contributions. You see, not only is an unjust way of life that is centered on self deprived of God's lasting rewards and gifts, which God gives in full only to those who belong to him, but God also has ordained that all the fruits produced by a self-centered lifestyle will ultimately be for the good of his people. How do you like that? He says... Last part of verse 26. To the sinner, he has given the task of gathering and collecting so that he may give to the one who is good in God's sight. This too is futility and a striving after the win. You just can't win. The sage recognizes at this point God's sovereign hand in working in the background of humanity. And God is certainly the one who has tasked the unredeemed to this agenda. 
it's the sorry task that, that which God has given to the sons of mankind to be troubled that we encountered back in chapter 1, verse 13. Not only is everyone and everything subject to the operations of this fallen world that are run according to the will of God, but it is also for his glory, and I might add, for the good of his people. Whether or not an unredeemed person is aware of this really doesn't make it any less true. The sage certainly knows it. He knows it's true, and that truth leads him to conclude that life under the sun, outside of a covenant relationship with God, amounts to nothing more than a chasing after the wind. That's it. The conclusion, I think, is plain enough. In the end, the fruits of a self-centered life promises only resentment and hopelessness, frustration, because... The future of its state is beyond its control. Lasting reward is beyond its reach. And the advancements from its labor are beyond its scope. As we said, most don't know this truth because they suppress it. They don't follow life to its logical extreme as the sage does here. And they don't want to. The conclusion is too dismal, too hopeless. They'd rather go through life blind, blissfully ignorant. Life is hard enough. Why make it worse with news like this? Well, because it's part of a glorious message that we call the gospel. And it lays the foundation for receiving the rest of the news, which is the best by far. We read about it in our scripture reading. We can confirm, then, the sage's principle with, with its complementary counterpart in 1 Peter 1. In verses 3 to 9, we heard it read this morning ably, when addressing Christians who are persecuted, another reality of living in a fallen world, Peter reminds them of this obverse truth, opposite of what we read in Ecclesiastes in our passage, namely that those of us who have a God-centered life can greatly rejoice now while we work under the sun because we are motivated by a joy inexpressible. Those are his words. A joy, a contentment, a satisfaction in the midst of persecution, mind you, that is so robust, so heartfelt, It's hard to put into words. You have to experience it. And the reason for this inexpressible contentment and great joy? Well, because God caused us to be born again. He turned our self-centered life into a God-centered one. The outcome of this divine work was our faith in Christ and the salvation of our soul. By far and far from the hopelessness of the self-centered life, the life centered on God experiences a living hope. That is a certainty of its future investments. This hope is unmovable, 
and sure. Since it's founded on the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and verse 4, it guarantees us a great inheritance that is unperishable, undefiled, and not fading away. It is reserved in heaven for us. What a great, what great news this is. It's great because it's true. It's reality. And anyone can receive it by faith. Only after he understands just how destitute his under-the-sun worldview and self-centered life are. Which is why Ecclesiastes is so important. Only then does he truly understand that fruits are of two kinds. An earthly, man-made, fleeting kind in the life of the depraved that is more work than it's worth. And a supernatural, spiritual fruit that is generated by the Holy Spirit himself in the lives of Christians. We call it the fruit of the Spirit. And that is great gain. Christians display this fruit now. They enjoy it now. And it's worth a lifetime of work, even suffering, because it's an investment in the kingdom of heaven that brings a huge return, the inheritance of eternal life. Who in his right mind wouldn't want the God-centered life over the self-centered one? And when, and, when, and when someone does, it's because he understands what Jesus meant when he said, the one who has found his life will lose it, and the one who has lost his life on my account will find it. Our Father, we are thankful for your mercy to us and grace, for giving us your word, a word which came from your mouth, and you have preserved down through the ages that it might wind up in our hands, that we might read it, and that we might know you and have eternal life. We pray that if it should be that there are any, uh, anyone in earshot of this message who is without Christ, outside of a covenant relationship with him, that, that that person would know no peace and no rest until he comes to rest finally and comfortably in Christ as Lord and Master, Savior and Friend. And for your redeemed own, O oh God, we pray that we will, we will hold the gospel truths dear to our hearts, let them direct our thinking and our living for your glory, for your honor, and for the benefit of your church, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. 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 Amen.